Matthew chapter 4 is where we are. Can you believe we started Matthew at Christmas time? Yep, and here it is July. I don't know, was this March? You know what? I, look, I've, I'm, it was years ago I, made the, I was recognizing that time was moving quickly. I said, look, it was, you know, it's, it's March, so you might as well get, start your Christmas shopping. We will be in the Gospel of Matthew probably for the foreseeable future. There is a whole lot uh, of material in this text from the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus that we will do so well to lean into, to, to embrace and be embraced by. And so just lean in with me because I believe there's, you know, I believe this is going to sound silly to say I believe there's something about being a disciple of Jesus. That Everybody would say, well, duh. Yeah, but I just, there's something more. And I'm not saying that we're, going to, that we're discovering something that hasn't been known, of course, for 2,000 years. But I do believe that there is greater light, there's greater emphasis. I believe there is a prophetic emphasis to this house and through this house about about being a follower of Jesus, living like him, living for him, and living like him through vital contact with the Spirit in a way that transforms our lives so that as disciples, as followers of Jesus, that, his, that, our, that he would have such a meaningful influence in our lives that our lives will have a radical, powerful meaning influence upon our world. So we pick it up now in chapter 4 toward the end, the very last few verses of our chapter 4. And we know that the Gospel of Matthew calls the reader to respond to the kingdom of heaven as a disciple. Now we've heard the message of, of Jesus, this, a, new, a new section in Matthew that began in chapter 4 and verse 17 when, when Matthew says, and from this time on... And this begins Matthew's narrative of the ministry life of Jesus. From this time on, it says, he began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then we saw the response to that message in in, uh, verses 18 through 22. The response to that message is that Jesus initiates a response by calling people to be his followers, to be his disciples. Today, we will see the power of that kingdom in demonstration. The power that confirms the mission and the nature of the gospel. Today, Matthew will describe for the reader something that has never been seen or heard before. Today, we will behold for the first time the dominion of the Spirit break out in the ministry of Jesus. I say that with emphasis and drama on purpose because 2,000 years later with a whole book in our hands, it can feel familiar, it can feel like rerun, it can feel like, what do you mean for the first time? I heard this. I've seen the cartoons. I, I know these stories. But as Matthew writes them, first of all, as they happen, as we read them, 
these things that we are about to read have never crossed the pages of human history. The planet Earth has never seen what we're about to read about today. Never saw it before. And as you and I, if we were the original readers of Matthew's text, we would open it up and begin to read, and we would be awestruck. We would be shook to our core at what we're reading because no one has ever seen this before. The kingdom, the dominion of the Spirit is about to break out before our very eyes. And here it is. Verse 23 of chapter 4. Just three verses this morning. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Verse 25, large crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Father, thanks for these words. Thanks for their their truth, their power, and their hope. And let them break out amongst us afresh today. Amen. What happened here? Well, in the text, textually speaking, Matthew is setting us up. He is giving us a preview for the next section of the book. He is letting the reader know he's about to talk about the the teaching and preaching ministry of Jesus and the healing ministry of Jesus. So we'll see that in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. But in that preview, in just announcing that preview, again, he has shaken the pillars of, of human history by reporting what Jesus did. What was happening? Jesus was going. He was going, teaching, preaching, and healing. The the syntax, the grammar here is 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 not unimportant. When it says uh, Jesus was going that is an imperfect verb. Now, I know when I say imperfect verb, you think, oh, it's flawed. It's not a very good verb. Uh, no, that just means that the verb isn't, it, verb isn't finished. It means that it, it's, it's telling the reader, if we're reading it in Greek, that it's, it's describing an ongoing activity. Jesus, this was, was something that Jesus was doing. He not, not just that he did, that would be a, a perfect uh, aorist, like that happened. This was happening. Everybody say it was happening. So that's the main verb there, okay? That this was, he, as he was going. Everybody say as he was going. That's, that's kind of the umbrella. And then under the as he was going, 
he gives us three, and it's in your Bible. It should have three ing words. Those are participles. Those are all attached to the main verb, was going. So as he was going, he was teaching, preaching, and healing. So it should feel like this. As he was going, he was teaching in their synagogues. So the synagogues were the, were the places of worship. They were the places where people gathered to, to, for prayer. They gathered for the, the reading of Scripture and the discussion of Scripture. Likely, Matthew intends us to mean that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues primarily on whenever Sabbath occurred as he was going day after day, week after week, throughout the region of Galilee, on, like it, you might say, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. We'll see those words often as we go through the whole text. So he would go into the Sabbath, on, into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and, and, and use the scriptures and teach about the dominion of the Spirit, the outbreaking of the kingdom of God, what this meant. We'll see that. And as he was teaching, everybody say, as he was teaching, as he was doing that, he was preaching, or proclaiming, but preaching, announcing the gospel of the kingdom. He was announcing the good news of the dominion of the Spirit. We know, well, what, what was he saying as he was preaching that? We don't have to guess. Matthew's already told us, chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was his message everywhere, every day. He kept calling people to repent and submit to the kingdom. And as he was preaching, he was healing. Everybody say, he was healing. That's a, that is a, that, that it was happening. These things were happening all concurrently. There was this, 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 at this, there was this at the same time. There wasn't, it wasn't first place, second place, third place. It was that here's what he was really important, and then here was the lesser important, and then the kind of the, whenever he got around to it. You say, Dev, why would you even mention it like that? Because too often it is presented that way in teaching or even commentary. There is a deeply flawed approach, but there's nothing about the text or the syntax or the context that would let us give, a, give a, a priority one thing to another. They all were happening. The, 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 the text is these were all happening at the same time. He was giving equal priority to them all. He was healing. But here's the deal with that. How many know that before that, people have, people have been teachers? Right? We was is before verse twenty three, has there been anyone teaching the scripture? Before verse twenty three, had there been anyone preaching? Before verse twenty three, had there been anyone healing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease? No. He was healing every kind of disease. Your ESV says every disease and every sickness. And there's a reason why the word every is included in the grammar. Because Matthew wants us to know that this is comprehensive. No 
malady was out of reach of the hands of Jesus. You got to feel that. No, it was he was ministering, and it wasn't. You got to think. No one ever. They, they didn't bring anyone to Jesus and have him go. Whew, I don't know if I can handle that one. <laughs> you've been you've been ill too long. It's been that way for too long. I, you know, you better, I, I can't deal with that. Ooh, you are really broken. Oh, that's congenital. I can't deal with that. Oh, you know, there's no cure for that. Every kind. Every kind. There wasn't where there wasn't a, there was not one example of human suffering that was brought to Jesus that that was that did not crumble at the touch of his hand. This was a shock. This was new. This has never happened in biblical history. Not Moses, not Elijah. Name your favorite Old Testament hero. Never happened before. The only thing close to this is not an accident. The only thing close to this is the Pentateuch's promise of Yahweh being the healer of the nation of Israel. Matthew's words, as a matter of fact, Matthew's words in verse 23, in the Greek, every, every disease and every sickness, they are a mirror image of the Greek text in the Septuagint. Now, I don't want to bore you or disinterest you. But the Septuagint, or, the, or you might see the letters LXX in some of your reading. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. The Septuagint occurred a couple, let's just say a couple hundred years even before Christ. So it is, an, it is a very old, uh, it predates the Jesus in terms of the Greek translation. So Matthew's audience would have been very, very familiar with the Septuagint. They would have probably read from it often in their homes. It would have been something that was on the tip of their tongue. You know, you know like Grandma and Grandpa had the King James, right, Sean? Grandma and Grandpa had the King James, but Sean, he's carrying around his New Living, if you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, so this was the NIV. This was the New Living of their day. They, they, this was something in, in, the, in the, the commerce language in Greek. And in the Septuagint in Deuteronomy 7.15, listen to the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 7.15 and see if it sounds familiar. And the Lord, the Lord will remove from you every illness and all the dread diseases of Egypt. That's, those are the two English comparisons, but the Greek is a mirror image. Every sickness and every disease the Lord will remove from you. Now, in your Bibles, it doesn't, it's not highlighted, it's not italicized, it's not bold, and Matthew doesn't say, and as the Moses said. But you know what? Here's what's interesting about Matthew, is he doesn't even footnote all the times that he actually references the Old Testament. 
He does often. He'll say, and as the prophet said this and the other thing. But Matthew is so Bible-saturated, like John was later. Matthew is so Old Testament-saturated that it comes out in his reading. He makes unsighted allusions to the Old Testament over and over again. And, but his, his original audience would have picked this up. Now, I should tell you, just by way of disclaimer, that I actually found this in my own personal research as I was reading this in the Greek. That sounds very fancy, doesn't it? As I was reading this in the Greek, and, I, and, I, and then I was reading some stuff in the Septuagint in Deuteronomy. I was looking, and I was looking through the, the, the Septuagint in the Old Testament, looking at, story, uh, at passages about healing, and I saw that these verses matched. They were mirror images of each other, and I said, oh, I think Matthew's up to something, and we'll see later how he is, even more so. And I thought that I found something. I told, a, I told one of my professors, he said, oh, that's really good. You should try to publish that. And then I almost did, but then I found out two other people already had. <laughs> but this is true. Matthew is intentionally trying to signal something to the reader. And this is really important. What is he signaling? Because Deuteronomy says this, Yahweh himself will drive from you every sickness and disease. So when Matthew signals this to his audience, he's giving his audience a clue that this is no ordinary person at work, that Jesus is the image. He's the icon. He is the reflection of Yahweh himself. And Jesus' work is the work of Yahweh himself. Driving out sickness and disease. Now, the more that weighs on you and the more you feel, whoa, that's really deep, stay with us for a few weeks until we get to chapter 10, and then your world will go kaboomy. <laughs> oh, I'll just tell you now, eventually you get to do that. Eventually the work of Yahweh is commissioned to the church. The exact same language. There's a preview. It'll be weeks. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> You have a whole Sermon on the Mount to walk through. The good news is that starts off with lots of people being blessed about things. But we can't emphasize enough that this is the first that we read. Golly, do you feel this? This is the first that we read of any healing in the New Testament at all. first time that word is even mentioned now healing is here in the new testament this is our as they as they organize it and the early writers that we what's 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 happening here is that matthew has now set the tone for jesus ministry in galilee and in general from here forward th- what he has just said describes sets the tone it sets our expectometer for Jesus, that he teaches and he preaches and he heals every kind of sickness and disease. This is the new normal. Come on, somebody say the new normal. Jesus was healing every kind of disease. Jesus was healing every kind of sickness so that news of Jesus spread throughout the whole region. And they brought to him a full range of human suffering. Verse 24 gives us that, the, just an example of that range. 
In other words, friends, the people's response when they began to hear news of help was to bring those who needed it. There's help. Let's get Aunt Aunt Susie. You know, Uncle Bob's been in the basement crying out too long. It's time to bring him out. Whatever's been bothering him for decades, we hear somebody can do something about it. And that's the Jesus that we serve. That's the message of the gospel. Whatever people are bogged down with, broken by, in bondage to, there is somebody that can do something about it. And they brought to him all who were ill. I know we, we because of we, we were so, so Jesus-y, Jesus-saturated, we're like, well, yeah, of course, because Jesus is so nice. But listen, this is also groundbreaking because he, we're talking about people that nobody paid attention to. These were the castaways, the outcasts, the garbage. This is the refuse pile of humanity. You can't help them. There's nothing you can do for them. Just pff, set them aside. Hold on, it'll be over after a bit. You'll be dead soon. These were not, these people were not the focus. But that's the thing about the gospel, it just messes everything up. (laughs) Jesus later says, I didn't come to call the healthy, but the sick. I have a very specific audience. There are, some, there are some things broken, but I didn't come here to just applaud the, the appear. I didn't come here to applaud those who appear fixed. I, stuff is busted, and I came to fix it. People are broken, and he's come to make them whole. These became the focus, the target of people who had been given up on, people who had been abandoned, people, these became the focus of everyone's attention. There's something can be done. Let's go get everybody and bring those people to Jesus. They brought those who, listen to this list, they brought those who suffered with various diseases and pains. Is anybody left out of that? Honestly, is anyone left out? What's the diagnosis? Does it hurt? Come see Jesus. What's the diagnosis? I don't know. This hurts. I got. I know somebody. Various diseases. We don't know what they were. They don't know what the disease is, but something's wrong. And they don't know what, or they don't know what's wrong. They just know they hurt. This is new. Those who suffer with various diseases and pains. And then. Demoniacs. People that were under the oppression of demons. And not. And not. Not the. Words of some contemporary commentators that like to say, well, what what Matthew means is those who thought they were under a demonic oppression. Oh, the sanctimonious arrogance of North American evangelicalism that says, oh, that's not real. I'll tell you who it's real to are the people under that demonic oppression and the, and the people who love those who are under demonic oppression. It's real. And there, see the thing, and then, and then the epileptics and then the paralytics 
But listen to the, even that even that list. It's not specific, but there's a specificity to it. I'm sorry for how that sounds, but just work with me. I'll try to explain what I mean. The specificity is this list includes things for which no cure existed and things for which no cause could be explained. We can't fix it, and we don't even know why it's that way. There's the big list. And they brought those cases to Jesus. But I want us to see that Matthew includes demonization in the list of things that Jesus healed. They brought him those demonized, and Jesus healed them. I know you and I are expecting that they would hear, and they brought him the demonized, and Jesus cast the demons out, which he did. But why is Matthew calling that healed? Well, because Matthew is following a Jewish pattern, a Jewish uh, rabbinical pattern of not necessarily or unnecessarily separating these kinds of afflictions. If people were demonized, Jesus treated them as victims and who, who were candidates for his compassion. Matthew uses the word healed because healing is a big word that covers all of our brokenness. Verse 24, the list is not meant to be diagnostic. It's not meant to be comprehensive. It's meant to be illustrative or illustrative of the range and the scope of Jesus' compassionate power to heal. They brought them and he healed them. So that, Verse 25 says that crowds or, or multitudes, like groups of, of, potentially groups of thousands, came to him and began following him from all parts of Galilee and beyond. If we had a map, we could show you the, the, the different regions there. We know Galilee is in the north part of the Sea of Galilee. It's in the north part of the of the nation, just above it are, are some of the more uh, pagan uh, influences, but Galilee itself is populated by, by a, a mixture of ethnicity and, and, and nationality. Then it says that people followed him from the Decapolis. The Decapolis, that's like, that's this, that must be the other city next to Metropolis. <laughs> Decapolis is the Decapolis was a small federation of towns. It, it literally meant the ten towns, but there could have been more than ten, but there were probably ten majority cities that were kind of a federated group of cities, and they were defined by their Hellenistic culture. These were high Greek cities. Greek culture, Greek influence, Greek education, Greek polish, Greek shine. These were the ten cosmopolitan er regions. High class, high money, high paganism, high Greek. So you have Galilee, which is kind of the, the, it's this brooding mix of people always ready for a fight. Honestly, there was lots of stirring up there in Galilee. You have the Decapolis, which is the, you have the, all the Manhattanites. You feel that? Jerusalem a city saturated in religious history and tradition, 
a center of religion and politics. Judea and then areas beyond the Jordan. What in the world? It, It appears as if Matthew is telling us that people came to Jesus from a cross-section of socioeconomic, religious, political, ethnic, and geographical boundary. How did Jesus modify and accommodate his message for all these kind of people? How did Jesus market himself to to, to strategically reach people in different people groups and and, 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 and stratas and cities? Because, you know, you you have to really accommodate your message for a certain people group. You have to define your audience and then create your net around them. I know I, I lost my temper last week, second service about something. But guys, we there is, hey, listen, there is so much garbage, refuse nonsense about marketing the church and what you have to do. But look at Jesus. It is the, apparently everything Jesus said and did touched the deepest need and longing and hope of humanity. Apparently, there are a lot of different kinds of people, but there's only one kind of Jesus. Apparently, Jesus is enough for every socio-economic, ethnic, geographic region. You just turn him loose and let him be Jesus, and humanity will come home. Well, that's what happened. Part two is, what did that mean? That was supposed to be very objective and observatory. There's the news. Here's the analysis. What did it mean? It meant that there was no limit to Jesus' compassionate power. The immediate message of Jesus' ministry was not a metaphor or a moral. What do you mean, Dav? Well, you know as well as I do that just about every time someone opens up and reads from a miracle story, the first thing they'll do is say, and you know what this means? This means that when you're having a really hard day, you can trust Jesus to help you. <laughs> and you, th- you know it's true. You just look it up. Oh, Jesus, you know, he, he opened the eyes of the blind. And sometimes when we just can't really see what's right in front of us, Jesus will help us see <laughs> You think that I'm, I'm mocking it on purpose because it deserves to be mocked. But the but people, people take a miracle and they make it a metaphor or a moral story. But no one whose eyes were blind and Jesus opened them said, you know, this makes me think maybe I haven't been seeing things very clearly. No, they said, I used to not see at all. But then something happened. Somebody touched me and my world of darkness and hopelessness changed. And now I can see because somebody, I never heard of this guy, but he touched me. Now I can see. Somebody else said I couldn't move, but now I can walk. Somebody else said my I was dying of decay, but now I have life. It's not a moral to the story. It's not a metaphor. It is a miracle. This is life. This is hope. This is power. This is heaven breaking in right now. This is proof that this world is not all there is. It is proof that there is a new heaven and a new earth coming. There's proof there's a God in heaven that this is an eternal. The kingdom of God is not the castle in the clouds someday. It is a right now demonstration of an eternal reality. 
What did it mean? It means that Jesus did not come to sympathize with human suffering. He came to solve it. Jesus' defeat of sickness was part of his overcoming of evil. It meant that there wasn't anything or anyone too far, too bad, too broken, or too sad for the compassion of Jesus. Further, further, there is no single mention of Jesus evaluating on a case-by-case basis who he would like to heal and who should stay sick. There was no mysterious assigning of someone to remain suffering in their sickness for their own good, their own betterment, their own maturity, or their own sanctification. He healed them all. Once again, this reveals the nature of Jesus. If there's a God we know is powerful, we assume he can do stuff. Jesus didn't come just to give us confidence that God is powerful, but to help us trust in his nature. It meant, further, there was no distinction between Jesus' demand for discipleship and his demonstration of compassionate power. There was no compartmentalization between discipleship and demonstration. He didn't form two different kinds of churches. Well, we're more of a teaching church and we're more of a power church. If you separate them, you've separated Jesus. Healing and deliverance were the context of his preaching and teaching. Healing and deliverance were not in addition to, they were not a subsidiary of, they were, they were the context. The same Jesus who demanded repentance and allegiance, and he did demand it, The same Jesus who demanded repentance and allegiance demonstrated compassionate power. No distinction, no preference, no difference. It meant that further that no differences between people were greater than their common need for hope. Again, there's many different kinds of people, but there is one Jesus for all of us. It meant that hope transcended every barrier between people. Not to bring them together, but to bring them to Jesus. See, Dad, why would you differentiate that? Because the idea of can't we, let's just all get together, that eventually leads to Babylon. That's Babylon. That's the Tower of Babel. Let's just all get together and do our own thing. No, he didn't come to bring us together. He came to bring us to him. Lastly, what does that mean to us? Just to make it more specific. Not new information at this point. What does it mean to us? It means 
Jesus is a healer. I guess I was waiting for who else is in the room. It's just me and Eric. It means Jesus is a healer. It is what he does. It is his will to make you well. There is no question regarding his ability or his will. There may be things we don't understand, but we must never change the subject or modify this message. Jesus is a healer. We must never add small print or disclaimers. Jesus is a healer. He did not come to sympathize with our suffering, but to solve it. He did not come to cope with evil, but to overcome it. What does this mean to us? It means we've got to lean into all of this, friends. It means we must never separate Jesus the master from Jesus the miracle worker. Never. Never separate them. Jesus didn't prioritize teaching over healing or healing over teaching. These are and they must be concurrent expressions of the same kingdom. Healing and deliverance must remain the context of our preaching and teaching. Miracles alone do not necessarily make disciples. They can shatter a frame of reference. They can break through into our lives. They can meet a deep spiritual, physical, emotional need or problem. They can solve all kinds of stuff. They can, they can be wonderful, joy-giving, hope-producing, life-giving things. But miracles alone don't necessarily make disciples. But discipleship, Apart from a demonstration of the living, powerful, compassionate power of the Spirit is a forfeiture and a fracture of the gospel. Healing speaks. It speaks. It communicates and confirms the gospel. Of course, the first message of healing is is compassion and hope and joy. Amen. But also healing continues to speak. There is this ambient, resonating, echoing message to healing. Of love and redemption and restoration. Somebody said restoration. And healing is evidence. I hope that we can feel this this next phrase. Healing is. Now, I already said it's not a metaphor or a moral of the story. But after the initial experience, it does continue to speak. Absolutely. And what does it continue to say to us? It says that healing is evidence that something is wrong. Something needs to be fixed and it cannot come from within. It has to be divine. Healing speaks. It also healing elicits trust. The one who heals Is the one who can guide and direct and lead my life. Now, he is not required to heal. Hear me right. 
In fact, he rejected demands. People came to him and demanded he, you know, put on a dog and pony show for them, and he said, not doing that. He doesn't have to earn the right to be Lord. He already is. But that's what makes it so beautiful. As Lord, he generously, graciously, and powerfully, willingly, it's his idea to confront human suffering. Healing was his idea. Somebody say healing is his idea. It's not the result of a petition of the church. Well, you got enough signatures, I guess. To the degree, friends, that we compartmentalize discipleship from demonstration, we distance ourselves from the gospel. Someone might say, hey, Dav, why don't we see more demonstration? Probably because of compartmentalization. Because of a failure to recognize that these are mutual and symbiotic expressions of the kingdom. They're both normal. People in the past, and they do it today, they, people will shun a power ministry that doesn't emphasize truth and righteousness and obedience to Jesus. There's just something about it that feels off, and it should. Any ministry that doesn't lead to repentance and obedience and following Jesus, they've missed the boat. You should get off that boat. But also, it's just people will also drift from, from power, from, a, from, the, from the practice and the embrace of power in favor of information and behavior modification. Why is that? Well, because information can be organized and stored and compared, and programs are easy for us to manage. But power, and I pray that I have time to say this carefully, power requires submission and obedience and yieldedness. It requires, listen to this, this is why these things are connected. I hope you hear this. It requires utter reliance on divine supply. Healing, miracles require an utter reliance on divine supply. So does real righteousness. And so you can trace it. You can trace it as organizations, denominations, people drift away from a reliance on a God who wants to be present in their lives in power to heal and to deliver and to mend. They will concurrently also drift over to self righteousness legalism they will the same the same heart that leans on its own power away from god's power in in order to you know that drifts away from god's power to heal that heart will drift away from trusting the holy spirit's power to make us live right powerless will powerlessness movements will always become self Righteous groups. They will become carnal. But see, 
when we believe that he's a healer, we recognize there's something not right, but I can't fix it myself. My own creativity, energy, idea, effort, strategy won't fix this. I've got to yield to divine supply. And in that place, I recognize that there is a fountain that shall never run dry. What it means is that if we follow Jesus, we must never separate master from miracle worker. And lastly, friends, it means that Jesus is the single hope for all humanity. We must, hear me right, we must let Jesus be Jesus. It is the only way. He is the only way. The only hope. In this church, in your home, in your life, and in this moment. Let's let Jesus be Jesus today, right now. Could I ask you to stand together? I know you're grabbing your handbags and putting your coats on. You're fixing to skedaddle. Oh, good. He's done. time constraints because I've talked probably longer than I should but it's this kind of a moment right here it's easy to say yep got it I've written my notes down I've recorded that information I've, I've acknowledged it checked it off I filled in blanks on the notes success but these this passage must bring us to a place where we pause and we yield to divine supply Because that, there's this, that same dominion of the Spirit is responsible not only to bring healing, but to bring holiness. None of this is possible without His power. 